please pronounce your name correctly for me? <laughs> sure. Kelly Montez. And you are what I would define as like an art aid artist agent. Would that be an appropriate terminology? Artist representative. Representative. Okay. Now, one of the first things I always love to hear about people, of course, is how did they even get to the career positions they're in? So like all the way back, were your parents creative? Like, were are you an artist yourself? Like, how did this all come about from the beginning? Yeah, it's such a unbelievably random story. I can't believe actually that I get to do my job. Uh, the way it all started is back in college, I a friend brought me in for an internship at his ad agency. And I thought that sounded really kind of sexy and cool at 19, 20 years old to work at an ad agency. Uh, so I worked there and the woman that I worked under was wicked smart. And about six months after I had been working there, she left to go be a real estate agent. And so the agency was struggling and the VP who was on this big, that was the biggest piece of business. He got two weeks notice from her. And then it was him and I running this really big piece of business. So I was a college student taking classes, started, shifted my class schedule at night and was working on the National Realtors Association of America. And I recognized it was a really big opportunity to be working on radio spots and TV spots and all the stuff in college. <laughs> I was getting paid like $10 an hour. They were totally taking advantage of me. And I did that for the majority of my senior year. But then when I graduated, I had this amazing experience. It was the dot-com boom. And I started working at Goodby Silverstein Partners. And on the Discover credit card, which was an amazing account as someone coming out of college and being in debt, they put me on a, the, the promotion was how credit cards work, which was so powerful. It's a sidebar conversation, um, which I really, really appreciated. And then they put me on an acceptance project because Discover Card wasn't accepted everywhere. And so they needed to shift that perception that it was like a low-end card and nobody wanted to work on it on the account. It was a, it was a big account and they were like, okay, give it to the new girl because that's not sexy. Nobody's interested in that. And then Discover was like, well, this is our biggest problem. So this has to be where all the money goes towards. And they had given it to me who was out of school, 21 years old thought I knew everything. Oh my God. I thought I knew everything. I look back and cringe. My poor, as we all did. At as age, we all yes. do, as we all do. But, so then I was on this huge, they decided to do a really big outdoor campaign. And I was in New York. We worked with this photographer by the name of Kenji Toma, the guy who had just been in the mailroom and was promoted to junior art director and myself, we were both in our early twenties flying to New York 
on dot-com money, expense accounts, having a blast, shooting all this work. And that's when I met the original owner of Apostrophe. And that campaign ran for a good year and a half, two years. And Jonathan, who was the original owner of Apostrophe, wanted to open a San Francisco office. And while I had a blast working on that campaign, I was an account manager. And I just didn't want to be an account manager anymore. It's a hard job. The client's yelling at you. Creatives are yelling at you. Account planning's yelling at you. Everybody's like mad all the time. And you're just trying to cover up for the creatives and, and make budgets work. And it was so stressful. So then I thought, wow, being an artist rep, that's even sexier. That's even cooler. And I opened up the San Francisco office of apostrophe. I'm sorry. I can't tell if you're being sarcastic with those sexy remarks. No, I really thought it was, I mean, I was like 22 or 23 at the time. I just thought, how cool. I think in part because at that time, I didn't understand the artistic side of me. Growing up, I had taken ballet and got really into modern dance when I was younger. My parents, now that I'm older and I can look back on my life, I see my dad was this amazing gardener and the way in which he grew the garden and the different colors that would pop up and the way he would plant the trees. It's so beautiful. And the fact that he had the vision to go like at this time of year, this is going to grow and light up this side of the yard and that side of the yard was actually very artistic. And dance was something I did and I loved, but I never thought of myself as an artist. So then when I joined Apostrophe and about five years later, I bought Jonathan out of the business, moved to, I was in San Francisco at the time, opening the West Coast office. And then five years later, I moved to New York and I bought Jonathan out of the business. And I started to grow Apostrophe, how I wanted to grow it. That's when I started to realize, like, I have a great eye for photography that has been trained for my years of dance. I am very artistic and I can be a really creative thinker on the business side of things. And I'm very passionate about people in general. And if I can help them grow their lives and their passion, that really fills so much of a creative bucket for me. So that's how I became a rep. All right. Now, I'm always fascinated. How do you find your people that you rep? (laughs) Because the thing is, when I was young, I keep saying when I was young, back when I like left school, uh, to the best of my knowledge, this kind of stuff, I mean, it did exist, but it was more like reportage. So your magnum agencies and those kinds of things, but there wasn't really as much as, as there are today of like artist representatives in the way that like actors have had them, you know, for decades and I don't know, maybe even a hundred years for all I know, but for a long time, but like artists, you know, directors, photographers, these kinds of people didn't really have this until recently. And to a certain extent, I'm a little unhappy that like I came, I came along before that opportunity was there. 
But that being said, what is, what kind of characteristics? So like if you're out there either looking at portfolios or look, or somebody's brought you a portfolio, like what are the kind of characteristics that say this person I can work with? Like are you looking for people who are already good or are you looking for people that have potential that you can mold or, you know, so like what are some of these sort of things that you would sort of seek out to be able to work with well? I find talent in many different ways and I try to be conscious to find my talent from different sources that said, and I think that this has really come to light in the last few years, everyone needs to grow their circles, including myself. Early on, I really tried to meet with one new artist a week. When I was becoming the owner of Apostrophe, and I say becoming because it was a process of me becoming and owning Apostrophe, not just taking it over from someone. So when I moved to New York, I really made a conscious effort to try and make that happen every week. Probably did it about 50% of the time. And there's a couple of people on my roster still from those meetings where I just felt a connection to their work. Over time, I now interview artists the way I would an employee because they're my business partner. And I need to know that they're going to do the things that I think we need to do to grow their business. So a lot of times I'll give somebody a task. I'm very big on who is going to do what and by when. So when the artist doesn't follow up with me for that thing that we have both agreed their career needs focus on, then I know they're not a good business partner for me. How they take feedback is also really, really important to me. Having a growth mindset is very important. Could you get a, dig a little farther into that one? Because I think this is a big thing in the arts industry across the board is feedback, not only like giving feedback, but how to receive feedback. Because, I mean, I'm a professor. I, I give feedback a lot and I'm difficult in receiving feedback admittedly but I listen but I often take probably what I would consider like too much time to listen like I'll hear something and maybe like a year later I'll be like oh oh yeah that thing that was said to me a year ago yeah 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 that oh was yeah right. yeah I used to work with an artist that literally it would take him two to three years to absorb what I say and then put it into practice. And I appreciated that that was part of his process. That's me. Yeah. He, I will actually say we should even back up first to people being afraid to be honest with one another. That is something. In the arts industry, honest? In life. In Well, in life in general, I would even say. So, my husband works in a division of HR that believes that people don't leave their jobs because they hate their jobs. They leave their jobs because they have a bad manager. 
they leave their jobs because of bad communication. I would agree with that on many fronts. On many, many fronts. And when you think about all the relationships you have uh, with your parents, with your siblings, with your friends, with your coworkers, being honest and truly saying what you feel is a difficult thing to do, in part because I don't think that we work on that language. And let me be very clear that I am not always great at this. It is it is very difficult for me because I am a person that's often like, well, it's not that big of a deal. I'm going to let that go. I'm going to let that go. And then eventually I reach my boiling point and I go crazy. But I, I try to work on it. And I, and sometimes I'll, I'll give somebody the feedback and then afterwards I'll be like, I didn't say everything I needed to say, but it's a, it's a practice. You have to practice and you, you really have to work on that. And then you have to be open to receiving the feedback. But I think you have to learn how to give the feedback and then you have to learn how to receive the feedback. And even if it hurts, and even if you have to sit with it for a year or two in order to get there, that's okay. Or especially if it hurts. I mean, like some of the worst, most like, uh, like just soul crushing feedback I've ever gotten like it was very painful to hear, but again, like after time and reflection, I was suddenly like, oh yeah, shit. <laughs> yeah. I actually, I had this one professor in college. He, I'm not going to tell you what he, what I, but I was doing this style of artwork and he was like, you shouldn't be doing that. It's not good. I was using text and image together. And he's like, don't use text. It's a crutch. Put the idea in the image itself. No need to rely on the text. And I was like, no, no, fuck you. Like, I need it. That, that's what I have to do. Like, lay the fuck off. Ten years later, I was being, I was a professor and I was teaching another student. And a student came to me and said, hey, I want to use text and image. And I was like, don't use text. It's a crutch. And I was like, fuck. My <laughs> teacher... I literally, the words that my professor said to me came out of my mouth as a teacher. And I actively went back and found that teacher and I apologized to him immensely. That's amazing. But it was sort of like, God damn, 10 years it took to figure that one out. (laughs) When it comes to edits and images, I really, for a long time, I was like, I have to do the edit that it has to be my vision. And now I team is a, is a big part of apostrophe and teamwork. That's, that's part of our brand ethos. And I've learned that I have my perspective, which I've honed over the years, but I am still a consumer and the members of my team are so diverse and bring such interesting perspectives. And that's what's so wonderful about art. I think you can have a conversation around imagery for sure. And when I, especially when I'm working, I have a mentorship program with my mentees. I'll often hear like, what is it about this image? And I'm like, a couple people told me they liked it. And I said, like, yeah, but do you like it? Is this representative of you? This is so subjective. I'm sure you get that from your students all the time. 
all the fucking time. But like, not only who said that, but because like, if you show your art or your creative works to a loved one, they will always love what you produce. So like, never show anything creative to a loved one because they will pay. They oh, honey, that's so beautiful. Oh, that's so. Oh, you're so talented crock of shit you got to show it to somebody who doesn't care about you and can actually sort of objectively look at the work and give constructive helpful feedback i i always tell my students i'm like if you want to feel good about your your work show it to a loved one or your family but if you want honest feedback show it to somebody who doesn't give a shit yeah and it's creating your narrative when you look at the overall body of your work that that I try to that I try to think about. But anyway, going back to how I find artists meetings, although that's much more difficult now in the pandemic, and especially considering that I'm immunocompromised, my styling division is wonderful pipeline for new photographers because the stylists tell me how the photographers treat their assistants and the people that work with them on set. And to me, that is huge. There are way too many talented people out there. We want to work with those who are kind, who are collaborative, and understand that at least what works for us and for apostrophe is teamwork. Well, see, and that's a huge, um, I feel like a transition that's happened in the industry. Like back when I was still doing schooling and, and I, I did internships and I assisted for photographers and stuff, they were often very much like one man shows. Like they, the, it, there were, and sorry to gender it, but like, you know, one person show, they, they came in, they did their job, they hired people and it was just, it was very sort of matter of fact, you know, money transactional kind of thing. And it wasn't very collaborative, but it seems like that there's been this progression in the industry to much more collaborative works across the board, as far as I can tell, whether you're a fine artist or a commercial artist, because again, like there's now like uh, oftentimes you'll hire a photographer and that photographer say, Oh, well, I have a team. I have a stylist. I have an editor. I have, I have my team of people that I collaborate with, which I feel like is again, sort of something that's newer, like in the past 25 years, let's say, than was historical. I really felt the shift. Well, I think it happened for, I feel like there was a shift in part for apostrophe. I'm going to say it was probably seven or eight years ago. We had a moment where we were like, we rep majority men. We only had like two females on our, our roster at that time. But the styling division was mostly women that supportive role. So it, it was prior to the me too movement too, because we made a really conscious decision to seek out female artists. And I, and then me too happened. And I do feel like with women coming up in the industry, there was 
a conversation shift at that time. Now that could just be because a couple of years prior, we had made that conscious choice and, and then it all kind of converged. But I, I do think that when more women gain traction in the industry, that's when I at least felt that shift to a more collaborative team spirit. I could see that relationship. Yeah, that works for me. I mean, I find it interesting. I always wonder because I teach photography and in my classes, I'd say a bare minimum of 80% are women. I, I rarely have male students, but yet the, the industry is still dominated by men. I don't get it. Why? Is that, I mean, when it comes down to the nature of like actually making imagery, it's not like it's not gender specific. Like I don't understand why male dominance in the industry has existed for so long and to a certain extent still continues to happen. Like it women take stunning photos, if not possibly even better, at least more sensitive probably mm -hmm. than men for sure. So like I don't understand why there still at this time is that dominance of the male in in the photo industry. I don't expect you to change that. Yeah. No. Well, I, I think it's a conversation and it's a conversation that I have, especially with the new mothers on my team. And it's something that I have had to make sure that I'm careful about with my language too. There's a lot of, I'm sorry, I have to pick my kids up. I'm sorry. I can't make that meeting. I, I'm That's right when I'm cooking dinner for my family. First of all, there's no apologizing. It is flat out, I can't make that meeting. Can we pick another time? And women have a tendency to apologize for the, the duties and the roles that they play. And look, there are amazing fathers out there that absolutely share the load. I'm married to one and he's fantastic. Mr. Mom here. I love that. That's that is that is changing. And I think as that changes, women will take themselves out of the equation more. But now, especially with photo and motion converging and the 12 hour day is, you know, nine to nine is standard. That is really hard. And when you have just had a baby and you're trying to pump on set and the feelings of guilt and all that kind of stuff, women take themselves out of the equation. And that is, that is not a judgment call. I, I get that. I've been there. I have two kids. I was fucking psycho after I had both children to make a point to show I can do this. It's totally fine. Don't worry about it. I'm fine. I'm fine. I mean, my team members were like, yo lady, you literally gave birth 12 hours ago. Get off the phone. And they were right. But the pressure to be, I can be all these things was really real for me. And I know there's other women. There are, are photographers on my roster who have hid their pregnancies, haven't talked about their kids for a full first year of their lives on social media. And we have really honest conversations because they say, I'm worried that people aren't going to hire me when they find out I'm a mom. And I am like, yeah, that's a real conversation we have to have because it happens. It's a horrible thing that happens. I mean, I noticed it um, 
because when I, I do figurative photography and I actually moved to the United Arab Emirates. Okay. Oh, and wow. they, yeah, they don't like figurative artwork there to put it polite, politely. <laughs> and, and so like my CV has like a six year gap where like, I didn't do any exhibitions. I didn't do any sort of work, anything like that, because I couldn't where yeah. I was living. And so, and then I talked to some people about that, where like mothers oftentimes will have little gaps in their CVs, basically, where they haven't been shooting, they haven't been working, they haven't been sort of out in the industry because they took a couple years off to be a mother, you know, right after birth. And that's a horrible thing that, like, why is it that when people sort of like, even choose to take some time away for their family or even just for their own sanity for all, all yeah. they care. It doesn't even have to be having children, but maybe you just need a break. And then it's and then it's exponentially more difficult to come back into the industry. Like it's like they won't accept you back because they're like, are you gonna take another break again? I mean, I don't want to get too used to you. I think Oh, there's, I mean, this is, this is such a rich topic, you know, and then, and then you start to think about like maternity leaves and the way I remember someone who worked for me was like, I want a maternity leave. That's not fair. And I was like, oh, would you like to have something sucking on your nipples until they crack and bleed 24 seven and not sleep at all for three months? Sure. I'll, I'll call you up and scream in your face like every two hours. It's, it's not a break. And I think the unfortunate thing is that people see it as a break because a lot of times women go on maternity leave and then they exit their jobs and they don't have that honest conversation with their employer that they were always ready to go ahead and make that move. And so if you've never actually really, and, and advertising is a very young industry, if you haven't experienced having a kid and, and knowing what that looks like, people get really frustrated. And it's like, well, that person earned that break, 100% earned it. They were doing a completely different job at that time. And they're also ready to move on from you. If we could have at least in the States, a more honest conversation. Here we go back to honest conversations. I think it would also help to change perceptions. I'll tell you, the reason why I'm in the Czech Republic right now, because I'm, I'm American, but my wife is Czech. The reason why we're here is because our we have a plan to have a child in the next year or so. Now, the reason why we came to the Czech Republic for that is because my wife, as a Czech citizen, receives three years paid beautiful. maternity leave. I would lose my mind, but that's still beautiful that yeah. it's an option. <laughs> well, just to be clear, it's the it is an optional three years, minimum of one year of but you can take up to three years, all paid by the government and their employer are is legally obligated to take them back at the same position at the end of that three years. That's really amazing. Oh, you know, I'm Czech. Maybe I should yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> But some some people unfortunately take advantage of that where they, they, yeah. they're out for three years, then they get pregnant at two and a half years. So then they stay out for six years Ooh. and then they get pregnant again. And then they end up staying out for like 12 years. And that job still has to be waiting for them and the government has supported them the whole time. 
on some hand, it's magnificent. On some other hands, it's, you know, it's socialized medicine. There you go. Yeah, that's tough. That is really, that is really, that is really tough. It's, there's a light and a dark to everything. And you just have to choose the person that you are going to be. Oh yeah. No, we're totally here just to have a kid and have that three years. And then as soon as that's done, we're out of this country. You know, you bilk, bilk the system. But she that earned can that work. too. But she did she earn did. that by being Czech. She earned that, and she earned a free college degree because they had free education here too. So she got her master's degree for free as well. That's great. Which I'm also very bitter of because I'm still paying off my student loans. But I know. Yes. Well, and especially in the world of photography and art school, and it is unbelievably cost prohibitive for so many people to enter, enter our industry. Yeah. You lived in San Francisco. I actually got my MFA at the San Francisco Art Institute. Yeah. It's an expensive school. No shit. I had no yeah. idea when I entered how expensive it was. Not just the tuition, but then the living in San Francisco part also. That I oh, yeah. Support. I yeah. believe they are actually one of the biggest real estate holders in San Francisco. No. Actually. You're thinking, no, you're thinking about the, the Academy Institute. Yeah. yeah the you know, Institute of Art. They're, yeah, it's another place. I know exactly who you're talking about. I've always said that they were just a land scam place. Yeah. No, no, no. We're the one, the beautiful Spanish style place up on up on the hill by Girardelli. Like it's, oh. it's, a, it's Ooh, a legit yeah, art school. Gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a legit art school, not the place you're talking about. Well, they had, they, the other one I'm thinking of too, like I've known some amazing photographers that have, have come, come out of there and when I lived in San Francisco, I would go and do classes and review books and, and what have you there. And I always was really impressed. The only thing about art schools, at least the feedback that I get, is that they don't teach the business of photography and being an entrepreneur, being a small business owner is is complicated. Correct. They don't. Yes. It, it's one of the reasons why I made this podcast is basically like we could all sit here as creative people and wax on poetically about our artistic this and that bullshit. But the reality is, is we all know how to do that. But what we don't know how to do is run our what quote unquote our creative business. Yeah. Yeah, I still don't know. I'm 48 years old. I still don't know how to do this shit. I'm that, but that's why I'm here to ask you. Oh, I mean, I work on a trade organization and we've been running some webinars to try to help our membership, Artist Management Association. Um, and our membership is made up of other reps like myself. And we run these webinars and last night I we did one on insurances a guide to insurances I I've listened to that three times I was the moderator and I still go back and listen to it because it's like okay wait again do I have this right how am I going to explain this to a client it's so complicated I hate the American insurance industry 
period. <laughs> Full stop. Mic drop. <laughs> Pretty much. Like, I mean, I, I can't, the only redeeming quality is, of course, that you have access to as many drugs as you want, which as an ex-drug addict, I am all <laughs> for. Like, I love access to drugs, even if they're prescription drugs. So I'm all for that, but that's the only redeeming quality they have. Other than that, I think they're absolutely horrible. So it's it's very complicated and I don't it, it takes time to try to understand why do I need to have a workers comp policy and professional liability and well, how is professional liability different from general liability and the agency is covering the insurance on this job so I don't have to worry right nope I got to ask them to make you a named insured and and knowing how to advocate for yourself and when things are moving really fast, it's it's really difficult. And you know, we started a, a mentorship program around that just to really try to help. It focuses on emerging BIPOC talent and just trying to teach the business, trying to help people understand what they're signing when they're signing a PO. It's really complicated. Sorry, I'm giving a blank expression, a P.O.? Purchase order. Purchase order. Okay, yeah, okay, that I know. Yeah, okay, for the uh, unknowledgeable, uh, BIPOC, which you said, which I had only heard recently, which is Black, Indigenous, and People of Color, BIPOC. Yes. yes. For those people who may not understand that an acronym, like me. <laughs> yes. So, but okay, I was going to ask you about your mentorship program. It sounds magnificent. So I guess the thing would be, what brought it on? So like, it's that that's not something that I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm sure people are just sitting around having mentorships for BIPOCs. So like, yeah. So what was the impetus that made you say, you know what? We need to be doing this. It was the social justice movement. Apostrophe internally is actually very diverse. Something I'm very, very proud of. And even prior to the pandemic, like we did with women, we took a look at our roster and acknowledged it's real white. And our circle is real white. And when George Floyd's murder happened, we got together as a team and it was really emotional hearing the stories of our coworkers who are black, what they experience. And we, on that Zoom, as a team, we're just like, we cannot scream into Instagram anymore. So Julia, who's our VP of Business Development, was like, why don't we have a mentorship program? And it just was a light bulb that clicked. And Darnell, who's our visual brand director, who helps me set the overall aesthetic for apostrophe, was like, we agreed that we were going to go dark from Instagram for a week and we were going to figure this out. And we came together as a team, we worked on the syllabus. We figured it out. We made the application process. We laid out the timeline. 
we built the plane a little bit while we were flying it, but we launched it a week later and it is hands down one of the best learning experiences of my life. What we have gotten from the mentees is such a huge gift. And it really helped our team come together and think about what is it that we do that apostrophe does from a business perspective that's different? And how can we teach that to the mentees? So the coursework is everything from how do you build your brand? What's your social media voice? How do you interpret a creative brief? How do you create a treatment? How do you have a creative call? How do you put together an estimate? What kind of insurances do you need to have? What sort of language do you need to watch out for when you're signing a contract from a client? And at the end of the program, it's about 12 weeks worth of coursework. And during this time, we then put together, each mentee works on a personal project. And starting with the second session, we then gave them monetary and production support to help them put together that personal project. And we put together an online magazine that we then promote out to all of our clients. As well, we set each mentee up with somewhere between three to nine, depending on their availability, portfolio reviews with clients so that they get a chance to actually pitch their work because the more they pitch the work, the better they get at pitching themselves and the better they get at pitching themselves, the more likely they are to win a project. And this next year, we're trying to take it one step further and we've created a shadowing program. So if you hire one of our artists who's more established on our roster, we can pair them with one of our mentees so that they truly shadow, they go through the casting with the artist and the artist is telling them like, you know, this is what the brief is and this is what we're looking for in terms of the cast. And they sit in on the pre-pro call and they're standing by the monitor and they're receiving feedback from the client and they're hearing how an experienced artist manages that and makes changes. It's not just like being on set and getting coffee. And we pay them a day rate to do that. I love all of those things that you teach. I would like to know the answer to all of those questions as well. <laughs> because I mean, that I mean, those are the things that like us as creative people, like again, like we're not given in school. We're and, and you unfortunately we often have to learn by simply being an assistant. Like that's the way I learned it when I was young. Yeah. Like I used to assist for this guy who did photo shoots for architectural digest and he fucking made me get down on my hands and knees and with a little comb like that I use for my hair comb the carpet all in one direction wow. so that the image looked stunning and then he made me rearrange the bookshelf so that from like small to big so that from the perspective of the camera it looked like a straight line I mean it was ridiculous because I also had to put the books back in place before we left because it was so house so <laughs> like that's the stuff I learned. Yeah. And those are the things that I don't know. Cause I don't take pictures. 
I can give people my perspective on their portfolio and, and what sells and I can help them make a treatment, but I don't, I can't advise you on camera settings and all that jazz. Like that's not, that's not my jam, but I can walk you through common terms that you're going to see on a contract that you receive from your client and make you at least understand what it is you're signing or share it with you. If you're not comfortable with it, maybe you ask for this, maybe you ask for that. At the end of the day, it's the mentee's choice. It's my artist's choice as well. What it is that they're willing to agree to or not agree to. But if I can help them make an educated decision, then that's what I want to help them with. All right. In your application for the mentor program, you have a question that I think is a great question. And I would love to hear like some of the stories about like what you've heard about this, which was what challenges have you faced breaking into the photo industry? Oh man. I remember the first application. Sorry, get emotional thinking about it. The first application we read is a team just had us in tears. I couldn't afford the film for the camera. My parents found a camera for me and I would go around and I would take pictures, but I didn't have any film. Assistants not being invited to dinners because they were worried about the person being Asian and having Asian flesh or pulling them aside and being like, don't, don't drink. We don't want your face to turn red. I'm sorry. Wait, is that a thing? Yeah. Okay. I don't know. Uh, Yeah. Just a lot of also, I don't know who to talk to. There's no one in my life that can guide me. It's such a, privilege to be able to be an artist to say mom and dad I'm going to go be an artist it's not only a privilege to be able to be an artist because it's not an easy lifestyle choice for sure but but photographer or even film director or anything like that that's some of the most expensive artistic and creative choices in the market I mean, you know, paints and canvas, you can kind of flub those. You could use cheaper materials, but like you can't use a cheaper camera and that shit's expensive. And then all the software and the hardware, the the computers, the, the hard drive, like, God, it is, it's like, I put it as like the third most expensive hobby. So yachting, I say is number one, <laughs> golf is number two yes. and photography is number three. Yeah. I, you know, I had ex exceptionally supportive parents and I wanted to be a dance major and my dad first generation Mexican-American worked in a cannery all through high school to support his family so did my dad oh there you go yeah not Mexican but he worked in a cannery yeah he was like uh no (laughs) not doing that and I was like, I am, I'm going to mark that as my major. And then once I got to school, I was like, oh no, I, I, this isn't actually, it isn't actually for me, but yeah, it's really, it's, it's 
it's a really hard thing. And a lot of families don't understand it. They don't have the bandwidth to support it. And that, that was, there were a lot of stories about, about that, about the risk, feeling confident enough to take the risk as well. I mean, it's hard in any way, shape, and form. I mean, the you know, financial stuff aside, because I mean, to a certain extent, like if you make beautiful images, you can make them with any sort of materials, kind of thing. I mean, so there are ways around some of that. But one thing I was wondering about is, a lot of times, people when they come to like photographers, and specifically, I'm thinking because you do a lot of like lifestyle, fashion, advertising, this kind of stuff. A lot of people think like, oh, you have to be in New York or in LA or Chicago or Kansas City or basically wherever all the the the, the things is. Is that still true these days? To a certain extent. I mean, I, I feel like the last few years, the market ended up getting so competitive, like just before the pandemic, like everybody expects everyone to work as a local everywhere. And that's not really fair. I just had an artist that really wanted to work for this client. And so she went and she worked as a local in New York and she's got a great crew there, but travel is expensive again. And it really ate into her day rate. And we had to have a conversation of like, I don't know. I don't think we can keep doing this. It just, it doesn't make sense, especially when there's clients where she lives that want her and she doesn't have to work as a local. Wait, so, just to be clear, though, this person doing work in New York, but living where? San Francisco. Oh, yeah. that No, that's yeah. a very far one. Yeah. Yeah. That's about so, as far as you can get in the U.S. Yeah, it's, it's across the country. So I think the pandemic has opened up a lot of doors for people in general to live wherever they want. For my team, I don't care. And I... At a certain point, four years ago, when I found out I was pregnant with my second, my California rep resigned at the same time. And we had started doing so much more work in LA. It made sense for us to have an LA office. And I wasn't going to have two kids in my co-op in Brooklyn. So I moved to LA and I was remote. And at that point in time, I was like, look, if you're if you're a good shining superstar employee, I don't care where you work either. And then the pandemic accelerated that. So I think if a photographer chooses that they want to live in Kansas city and they're always going to have to travel for work, the majority of the time, depending on what it is that they do, then that's your, your trade-off. And hopefully clients will at least give a, a travel stipend to help a little bit with that. You know, it's not, these are mega corporations to give a photographer like a thousand bucks, $2,000 out of your gigantic corporate budget seems reasonable if you trust their artistic endeavor. Now, if you're a still life photographer, who cares? A lot of times it's for fashion shooters and lifestyle shooters. It's where you're going to get good talent and a good performance and good weather. And so, a good location in the background, and a good oftentimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think people are 
moving around. We've been shooting in Nashville and Atlanta and Arizona and Texas a lot more than we ever had before. And with other areas of the world being open, Mexico City is such a big hotspot. We've been so many times in Spain. We were just bidding on a job in Bulgaria. Like, great, fantastic. Um, But these ideas that small business owners have to absorb the cost for a Fortune 100 company blows my fucking mind. It is exhausting to think about that. Like I did a I did a shoot for a company that was, you know, probably Fortune 1000. You know, I mean not not poor, let's call it. And and they had like as far as I'm concerned, they have an endless budget for what they wanted and they were like nickel and diming me on every corner and I'm just like why the fuck do you all not like, I don't understand why they can't just say, okay, here's a hundred thousand dollars and we need this done in a week. <laughs> like, and, and don't worry about exactly how I spend the money. That's my business. Like if I, oh. if I do it within your budget, wouldn't it just be magnificent? Like I hate being micromanaged like that, especially when the people are so rich. Well, I have, I had a couple projects now that travel is coming back online where it's like, you got to hit, you have to hit this number. You have to hit this number. We have to hit this number. We can't go above this number. This is all we have for a budget. And we're like, all right, hit the budget. 15 people from the client are showing up, which means now in addition to catering locations cost going up because I've got so many extra people, portable bathrooms that I now have to add. I have to COVID test all those people in order to keep my set safe. And I'm like, you need 15 decision makers? What happened to we only have this much money? The amount of overages that I have and the boondoggle and like, hey, can we get a wrap dinner for 15 people? Well, and then those 15 people's salaries for the amount of time they were there could have increased your budget possibly to double. Yes. And, you know, now it's like, well, I don't really love what we were able to get for X. And it's like, okay, well, we're going to need a couple thousand dollars more in order to get props to exactly where we want. If you cancel three people from your entourage, their COVID testing could cover that props overage. What, what's the trade-off? Okay, wait a second. This COVID testing thing. You as the entrepreneur who is being hired, you, the cost of COVID testing is falling to you instead of to the client? No, I, I'm billing it back to them, but they're saying their okay, budget is tight for an overage. So I'm saying like, well, if you just if there if there's maybe three people that don't have to come to this shoot, I can ask their catering, I can ask their PCR and their daily antigen testing. And I could also probably lose a pass fan because I had to get more pass fans to shuttle you guys back and forth. For the uh non initiated, that is a passenger size van. Yes, passenger van. Sorry. <laughs> yes. Yes. I know, just, you know, some people don't know all these little lingo things. I used to be a roadie too. So like I got a lot of this lingo there. Got it. Yes. I'll try to, I will try to remember that. It's okay. It's just, you know, trying to be helpful for the uninitiated listeners. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right, but back to the the mentor program because I I mean I think it's a great idea. Like it's one of those like it's almost so obvious. It's like duh. But so have you? Now, you've been doing it, so it sounds like so probably what two years now. Two years. We uh, just opened the application for our third session, um, and applications the close at the end of March. March twenty eighth of twenty twenty two. Exactly. And I will try to make it so this episode goes out before that. So Thank maybe you. Could, like hear about that. Yes. And this is now a new way that we find talent. I will say this. We do not do this to find people for our roster, but there are particular mentees that show up in a major way that makes me go, I want to be your business partner. But we try to accept a very diverse range of styles. And for some of those people, I have a couple of mentees who work is beautiful and they would totally be great business partners, but it's not what I need for my roster. And I am happy to then go and promote them out to other representatives and have conversations with them about other representatives. I am super excited when a mentee comes to me. We, I'll back up. We do a lot of presentations to brands and we include our current mentee roster as a page in every deck that we present to brands. And the other day I was helping a mentee with an estimate and I, it was for a client that I had just put her in a deck for. And I was like, fuck yeah, I'm so happy. I'm like, this is so great. And she's like, oh, are you upset that I didn't talk to you about running this job through apostrophe? I'm like, no, you don't have to run the job through apostrophe. I believe all of this will pay us back in different ways. And it has. Like when you have to, as you know, as a professor, when you get the opportunity to teach somebody what you know, you learn so much about what you know. You start to think more creatively about what it is that you know. And that gift has made me such a better artist rep, such a better business owner, such a better employer, such a better collaborator with my team. So it's wonderful. I always find it fascinating when I have to teach something, I, the, the amount of things that I had taken for granted that I, that I was just like, that's obvious. Everybody knows that. Or like, you can't do that. And then I'm like, wait, why can't you do that? Like, wait, that, there's no legitimate reason for not doing that. Yeah, you can do that. So like, I love teaching because it makes me continually question why whatever is whatever like what you know art history is this which of course is always evolving or the technologies like you know i remember many times in the classroom where i'll I'll be like you can't do this photography doesn't allow for this and then like a week later my student would show up with that thing that i said that technologically photography could not accomplish they accomplished it and i'm like oh fuck i i'm got to rethink my verbiage because like nothing's impossible and Mm -hmm. and so like you have to encourage but also like the fun of it for me is that it makes me rethink everything and so I like sort of being refreshed on in that way because in a in a certain way 
especially as a photographer, sometimes you can get sort of in a in a rut. You can get into a style mm-hmm. and you're sort of stuck in that. I mean, I'm sure you run into photographers who run are in ruts and stuck in styles all the time. I mean, how do you help with that? You know, like if a one of your what do you, what do you refer to your collaborators as your photographers my yeah the talent artists talent i like that so we'll go with that so if one of the talent is like they've gotten into this like they're always known for this particular thing but they want to try something new like how do you branch out for these kinds of things because that's really a difficult thing for creative people to get bored (laughs) well i think it goes back to one the type of artists that we represent, that they are great collaborators. So at the beginning of every year, we do these artist game plans where we look at their business. We're a very data-driven organization. So anytime a client comes and makes a request, it goes into a database and we track that request. Like, did that inquiry turn into a bid? And did that bid t- turn into an award? If we lost the job, we try to always find out why we lose the job. Was it a competitor? Was it pricing? Did they just ghost us? And we keep track of all those metrics and we present them back to the artists at the end of the year. And there's usually a very interesting story that gets told about what was missing in the portfolio or who the new you know, sometimes you're leveling up on your competitor and so you're getting those bids, but you've, we've got to refine our pitch. We've got to be better on our treatments or we need to test in, in this category. And then I try to have a conversation too with the artists about where they're at in their career. The talent. The talent. The talent about where they're at in their career. I... Look at apostrophe. Apostrophe does a lot of different things. We have a, a we have a lot of different artists on our roster, and that is on purpose. One, I love it because creatively I'm being fed different types of Im- imagery. But it's also like your stock portfolio. You have a little of this. You have a little of this. You have a little of this. You have a little of that. So when something if something goes down, something else can go up, and when an artist does only one thing. They are putting all their eggs in one basket. And from a financial and business standpoint, that's not a good place to be. It's a very risky place to be. So we talk about the various categories. We talk about mixing up styles. And when you start to go back and look at those jobs that you lost, you start to realize where are the holes that you need to to fill within your portfolio? What is the market coming to you for? You might be wanting to put out one thing, but the market is also telling you what it is that they're looking at you for in the briefs. So you have to be open to hearing that. Of course, you don't only just listen to that feedback. You're talented and and you need to feed your creative soul. But there are guides in the world, and if you're open to listening to them, they will help you find your path forward. Okay. I have a question within that. Now, keep in mind, my background is more fine arts than the what I would call like commercial photography, commercial arts. So, But I was always under the impression 
that the best photographers were the ones who were not necessarily following the trends and meeting the trends, but actually leading the trends. So they're, they're taking a brief, let's say, so even commercial work. So like, cause I'm thinking some, some of my most uh, like iconic images in my mind are like some editorials and some advertisements that I've seen throughout my life. So it's like, I don't just look to, to fine art to be the, the inspiration, but they're, they they take a brief and they'll they'll push it a little farther. Like I find it the 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 photographers I know that when they get a brief and they answer the brief, I find that boring. <laughs> like I want to see something more out of that. Mm-hmm. I want so it's like so is it about sort of reacting to what you're hearing in the briefs, or is it about some ability, some unique characteristic that each individual artist has to interpret that brief and sort of push it a little bit farther like is that something that's important to you absolutely i'll say 95 percent of the time clients are coming for you to bring your perspective and expand upon it and make it more interesting sometimes people just want the comp which is a sad and frustrating and sometimes debilitating place for our artists to be when that becomes the case, because that's, that's not, that's not what they do, right? They, they do what you said to take it, interpret it and make it better and say like, Oh, I have this robot that can spin around the bottle on top of that. And we can do this really cool thing. Or I've got this like really creative angle. We can show your product this way instead. And, and that's, that's the fun. That's the fun of it. And then sometimes there's just those happy art accidents that you need to leave space for that, that happen, that happen on, on set. Because like, I have this opinion that as a general whole, a client, uh, like now, I know I don't mean like an advertising firm or something like this, but like a, a corporate client. So let's say Apple. Well, no, they're actually very, rather creative. Let's go for something not creative. What's a not creative client, like a washing machine company or whatever. So, like a not, cre- they're not creative. So, like they're just saying, like, hey, we need to do this, and they don't know shit. Like they don't actually know what can be done or what should be done or what could be done. And so, like to a certain extent, like it, it is our obligation to turn around and educate the client and say, hey, your idea is a nice foundation, but what you really need is to build it out in this way, in this way, in this way. And and a lot of times, I you know, as artists, we are we're so concerned about not getting the job that we end up playing it safer than we probably should. And like, if we push it a little farther, we probably would end up getting the job, but we're so scared that we won't get the job that we don't throw out or pitch the sort of absurd idea that might actually be the most magnificent thing ever. It can be scary to do that. And I understand why people don't do it. And it takes also growing in your career to have the experience and and the language to do that. I think that's actually why I love representing still life artists. What they can do with an inanimate object. One of our artists that I've worked with for a long time, Mitchell Feinberg, he has shot inanimate objects in a way that has made me blush like so sexy and 
a lot of times he'll get on the phone with a client and he'll be like, tell me some adjectives of what you're, you're hoping to achieve here that you want to convey. And he thinks a lot about a brand personality as well of what, what are they communicating to their audience and to be able to bring that out of a lipstick or a purse or a piece of steak. See, all of those things sounded sexy to me. Like I could do sexy <laughs> on all those. Things. Especially that steak. <laughs> yeah, I, they all sound sexy to me. It's like even without a picture. <laughs> yeah. All right. So when it comes to like, let's take fashion photography. Now I'm going to take fashion photography because I tried to do that in my career. Now, admittedly, failed miserably at it. But <laughs> the thing is, is it's a I, hard like, side of the business. It is so much harder than I thought it was. But not only that, it's there are so much to it. Like there's so much people don't even know about it that it's just like, oh, I didn't know about that until I was in it. And then I'm sure there's things I don't even know about it, having even tried to be in it. But the thing is, there's so many talented, there truly are amazing fashion photographers in the world that are doing gorgeous stuff. And I'm talking kids, you know, new newcomers, like young little guys that, and girls that are doing amazing stuff. What's the thing that differentiates them? Like, how can you? What you like? You you were talking about how like you you think you have a good eye for like talent and 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 potential kind of thing. Like, I'm not sure I have that eye. So like, so I'm sort of asking you like, what are some of the things? Like, if you were to just look at a portfolio of let's say some fashion work, what differentiates somebody that you think has some potential versus somebody who you're not quite as certain about? how they direct talent, how they're able to make somebody feel really comfortable in front of their lens, especially if it's an artist that is just starting out in the business and they're not working with a top tier model. If they can get a performance out of someone, that's incredible. And then if they can keep a keen eye to the detail of a piece of clothing on top of that, Shazam. Oh, that is such my pet peeve. Oh, thank God you said that, not me. Yeah, I'm, the details to me are the of the utmost importance because like a, I always say that like a bad, one bad thing, like a bad lay of a piece of fabric or a hair sort of out of place or whatever can ruin what could have been an amazing photo? No, I think when I'm evaluating a younger artist, in addition to performance, it's also the emotional journey that you can go through in their portfolio. So a lot of times people are taking portraits, they're not engaged with the lens. There's a coldness about it. And it's like, you're, you're executing still life here. There might be a person in that photograph. But I know that kind of work you're talking yeah. about. Yes. So people want to go on a journey with you emotionally within your portfolio. And so to be able to do that 
and take some risks and be willing to fail is something that I've seen a few of my mentees do. And it's, I'm so excited for the careers they're going to have. Within that, like, I mean, I, when I got to Europe, people looked at my portfolio and they just went, oh, you're American. There was, there, there was something unique in the imagery. I I believe it was about the way I posed my models and and all this kind of stuff that was somehow uniquely American. And I was unaware that there's like a difference between cultures having now lived here for, you know, almost four years. I see it. I, I know exactly what they're talking about. There's a very strong difference between like European poses, let's say, versus American poses. And it's it's something that never even dawned on me until having lived here for enough time. I will have to have a whole separate conversation with you about that so that I can help my talented Oh, it's pretty simple, really. Uh, you know, S curves and general sort mm-hmm. of sexiness, American. <laughs> really interesting. Yeah, yeah. European is very uh, straight uh, poses, very like almost not posing poses versus overly posed, expressive poses. Generally, very American. Interesting. Yeah, I still like American style, but whatever. <laughs> I was born and raised there. Of course, I'm going to like that. So anyways, last little bit, um, some advice. So for the young people out there, some you know, more specific advice. What I really like to hear for advice actually is things to stay away from, you know, mistakes that you might have seen people do or even made yourself kind of thing, because it's easy to know what what you should do. But I, I actually like to try to help people stay away from the problem areas. For people that are breaking into the business, I strongly encourage them to become members of the APA if you don't have a rep. American Photography Association. Thank you. The reason being is that they have a wealth of resources to help you understand the business side of things. You must read every contract that comes to you. If you get a NDA sent to you, ask if they have a mutual NDA. Otherwise, if you sign a unilateral, meaning that it protects the advertiser, you are potentially turning over preemptively your right to self-promotion, your, the ownership of your bid. They could hold on to that pricing, to the treatment. And the APA can help you to understand common language that you find on a contract. And It is okay and it is expected that you would ask questions and make requests. A client may or may not be able to do it. And then that's your choice, what it is that you decide to to agree to on a project. But it is okay to advocate for yourself. And by joining the APA, you can build your community. This 
business can be very isolating, but you can go to the events, you can go to the talks, listening to podcasts like this, listening to the, what the APA has, the uh, Artist Management Association that I'm the president of, our webinars are currently free. We have some free resources as well. Seek them out. These things are meant to uplift our industry and build your community. By the way, I wanted to mention, I sort of find it humorous that the managers, you, of artists has an association of managers. <laughs> There's this like meta thing going on there. It's like, yes. it's like what? That's, that's a lot of like bureaucracy and middle management almost. Well, in the pandemic, we really felt that we needed to come together and build a community as well. Because even for artist reps, they don't they don't talk and it's so competitive and we're all working towards the same goal. And again, everybody can make the choice that is best for them, how you price yourself, what you agree to, that's your competitive advantage. But you should be informed as to what it is that you're agreeing to. And it is okay to ask. One last little thing, like when it comes to like a lot of the, because you brought it up or you brought up something that made me think of it. When you, when your artists are taking, doing works for clients, do they keep the rights to the images specifically like so that they can then use, I mean, using it in their portfolio, kind of obvious, but I mean, these days their portfolio is their Instagram account. So like, do they keep the ability to utilize those images? More and more contracts People are asking for work for hire, which means a copyright transfer. We really push back against that. That's for me. I think it's a huge problem in our industry. On a broader scale, my issue with it is that this is a very expensive industry to break into. So if you are a diverse individual, who is trying to build your portfolio and you lose the right to self-promotion, then it makes it even more difficult to build your portfolio. So for all those companies out there that are all about their DEI initiatives, the number one thing you can do is let artists show their work. So that's my first issue with it. <laughs> Well, I mean, because copyright's long been an issue in the photo industry, mm -hmm. I mean, across the board. And and so it's just sort of a question of like these days when the, there are the, there's now this separation of basically work for hire versus all the other forms of contracts that give different variations. I mean, even being keeping up with the knowledge of like what the right terminology is to be able to keep your copyright is such a pain in the ass as far as I'm concerned. Two things, the Artist Management Association has a usage glossary that is free to everyone. So if people are trying to understand new, new terminology or even understand what people are talking about, they should go there and they should look at that. The second thing is the convergence between the photo and the motion world. And look, the motion world gave up their copyright back in the 70s when you're pushing cereals and Tide Pods. They didn't know, you know, it's 16 by nine. That, that, that was it. It was one format. It was going to show up one place. And for photography, and now even for motion, when you think about 
all media. That is a lot of media, what people are asking for. And it is expensive to run those ads. I don't know if this is true. My instinct is that in some weird way, NFTs are going to end up helping the usage conversation because you're going to be able to mint your photo and follow where it goes. Interesting theory. I'm not educated enough on NFTs to be Me neither. I shouldn't have that. that opinion, by the way. <laughs> like, I have no idea what I'm talking about, but I don't know. I have a good My gut. position on it is that it's just a mon- money laundering scam at the moment. But, you know, that's just me. That's my uneducated opinion at the moment. I actually think that it prevents money laundering. My husband used to work at American Express. And the way in which he's explained it to me, it actually seems like it makes it more difficult to launder money. More difficult doesn't mean not doing it. It just <laughs> makes it more difficult to do it. Fair, fair enough. I'm, you know what? I really, you should delete that whole part of the podcast because I don't, I don't know what I'm talking about. It's okay. I don't either, but that's where the name of the podcast comes from. But add it back in if I'm right in five years, okay? (laughs) All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. It was so lovely chatting with you. Before you leave, I'd like to say thank you for listening all the way to the end of the conversation. We appreciate it, and we would love it if you would share the podcast with your friends, your family, your co-workers, your studio mates, anybody with an interest in the arts and creative endeavors. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community, not only today, but in the future, is at the core of our mission for this podcast. They can listen and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool Art Podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com. Mm-hmm.